0: Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast, our first episode for 2023. I'm your host, David Frizzell. It's wonderful to be back in your ears for the new year. And before we get into today's episode, I'd like to remind you about my brand new project. It's called Your Story Pod. It's all about helping people tell their life story. I interview them and ask them all the right questions to cover the important chapters in their life childhood, their parents, stories from their early adult life, love, losses, lessons they've learned. I ask them about their children, their work, and the things they're passionate about. Imagine hearing the story of someone you love recorded that you can keep forever. It's a brilliant experience for the person being interviewed and for the family who get to listen to it and keep it for generations to come. Check it out at Your yourstorypod.com dot, com, dot au, and get in touch if there's someone in your life who should tell their story. And now to today's episode, the conversation you're about to hear is right in the sweet spot for this podcast. Taking the step into management or leadership is significant in your career. It requires a whole bunch of brand new skills, new things to focus on, relationships to be formed. Managing someone is a big deal. It affects their life, their happiness, their general well-being, and you want to do it well. So you'll love my guest in today's episode. Dominic McLaughlin has just written a book called Be a Better Manager in Five Minutes a Day. Dominic is full of wonderful, clear, practical advice for those of us who are stepping up into a management role and for people who just want to be better at it. Dominic is a serious guy He's got a PhD on building trust within organizations. He's a lecturer at UNSW and has done a bunch of research into what really makes an effective manager. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dominic McLaughlin. Dominic McLaughlin, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. My pleasure, Dominic. Now, I noticed that you are Dr. Dominic McLaughlin. What is your PhD in astrophysics? Something like that?
1: (laughs) No, not astrophysics. So, I guess technically it's in organization and management, but uh, the actual topic was
0: knowledge worker trust within organizations. How about that? Well, you are eminently qualified to be on this podcast, then, Dr. Dominic. Hey, my opening question to you, Dominic, is that you seem to very deliberately use the word manager. Through your yes. book and in your language, is that a distinction that you draw between leader and manager, or do you use those terms interchangeably? What's your thinking around that?
1: Yeah, that, that's a really good question because I think, you know, in some ways there is a lot of overlap, and perhaps some people would argue that if you're a manager, you must be a leader, and I respect that. But I guess what I was trying to do is to target people who are appointed uh, recently or sort of newer. And I think in that sense, people feel like I've just been appointed to this role as a manager, but I don't feel like a leader. So I was really trying to make sure I use language that targeted people who found themselves in charge of people. And so, yes, that was a deliberate decision.
0: Yeah, I like it. Now, we're going to get to your top five tips for improving your ability to manage people, for Mm. making people want and feel like they follow you, which I think is super valuable. We're going to get to those really soon. But In order to shape that, I'm really interested in your research. You spoke to over a 1,000 people, a 1,000 professionals about what makes them want to follow someone, what makes a good manager slash leader. What did you find through those 1,000 conversations?
1: Yeah, so they were actually um, surveys. There weren't as much conversations. I would have liked to get more detail than I did, but in essence, I was trying to say, well, What's your experience with the best manager you ever had? And what's your experience with the worst manager you ever had? Mm -hmm. And I was trying to get some sort of evidence that there's a difference on the kind of five areas that I thought were important. And the first or the top two were really that they honored their commitments and that they followed words with actions. So I'd consider that to be something around honesty, you know, in the sense of like people do what they say they're going to do. And then being honest was another one. But I think there's honesty in action as well as like the kind of concept people have of honesty. So that was where there was the biggest difference between the best and worst managers people ever had. Also, they were able to overcome difficulties, the best managers. So that's that sense of kind of persevering when there's kind of obstacles or issues. And then the last um, couple were about basing decisions more on the right thing to do rather than making money. And putting it that way, it was just trying to not necessarily to judge what the the right thing to do was, but to really make the point that people had an idea that the person that was managing them uh, had some other sort of objectives or goals and level of integrity. And then the last one was, um, you know, putting the needs of those reporting to them before their own needs. So obviously, that's a balance. You can't always just exhaust yourself helping people. Mm. But there's a sense in which, you know, the manager or the leader has the goals and the careers of their team, are in in view when they're sort of making decisions.
0: That's fantastic collection of insight. I really like that you've done that, and I really like that you, in in the way that you talk and in you your book, you talk about this concept of asking people who are beginning their journey as a manager to think about the best manager they've ever had and the worst manager they've ever had. Yeah. I, I often do that in workshops as well, and so really poignant kind of conversation it's a really poignant thing to people to for people to reflect on and it's an excellent way for people to start thinking about the type of manager that they want to be and yes. there's something really paradoxically healthy about thinking about your worst manager and deciding that you don't want to be like that it it never <laughs> in my experience dips into a negative conversation it's just no. reflecting on the stuff that hasn't worked for you as as someone looking to follow And it's really easy to turn that around into the positive. And obviously, thinking about the best manager I've ever had and how they make you feel and what kind of culture they encouraged within the team and the way that work got done and the way we communicated and everything that goes into being a team is obviously very healthy. And I've always found that a great place to start for people who are beginning their conscious journey in their own development.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because. I think we always relate better to our own experience than we do to theory. So in that way of like calling to mind our own experience, it really helps to ground whatever it is we're going to talk about. So yeah, I agree with you.
0: All right, let's do it, Dominic. Let's get to the good stuff. You're going to talk us through your top five tips for developing as a manager. They're based on everything that you've learned through 20 years of of being a consultant, 20 years of being an academic in university, teaching MBA students, and of course, the 1,000 surveys that you did when you asked people about their best manager. Hit us with the first one.
1: Yeah, so the first one is around um, mindset. So one of the key things that I think uh, new managers attempted to do is to think that they've got to be perfect when they first take on the role. It's like, now I'm a manager, I can't make any mistakes. But in reality, it's much better if people kind of are quite happy about acknowledging when they do make a mistake. And admitting to the team that they're not perfect, and that leads to the team seeing them as genuine, real, down to earth, you know, humble—all those things that really help make personal connections. And as part of what I've been uh, researching and in part of uh, this book, I really emphasise the importance of trust and trust in your in your manager, or trust between the manager and the team. In the team, really relies on that opportunity for people to feel like if I'm making a mistake myself, my manager will understand.
0: There's lots of research and discussions. I, I, I know I've read it and spoken to people in my podcast about it, but I can't put my finger on who, but the idea that a manager or a leader who doesn't make mistakes is actually really hard for people to warm to because they're not human. And they kind of set up this unspoken expectation that that's how we roll around here, where as the the manager who does make mistakes and is human, but admits to them, talks about them. Uh, Puts them on the table for the team to deal with and learn from. That's someone who is much more relatable for people who are looking for someone to follow.
1: Yes, I think that's really true. I think you know that that whole idea of you know the growth mindset is probably part of that too. That you know we we all look at the mistakes we've made and we learn from them rather than sort of like be afraid to make them.
0: Mm. And I'm guessing that when people talk about their worst manager. That would be the sort of thing that comes up quite often. My worst manager was someone who refused to acknowledge when they'd made a mistake. And we all had to walk around and continue working, pretending that that mistake had never been made and just get on with the job under that really strange illusion that everyone knew was not true.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think the other thing is that if if I as a manager uh, cannot admit that I've made a mistake, then I have to blame someone else. Mm, so there's also that yeah. that sense of like, okay, so it's other people that are causing this issue. So that also
0: is really destructive. A wonderful knock-on effect that that must yeah. have. All right, fantastic. So the first one was about having a, a mindset that suggests you don't have to be perfect. You can make mistakes. And in fact, it's great to talk about the mistakes you make. It, it creates a really positive and constructive team culture, and it, it sets you up as someone who is down to earth and humble and real and relatable in all those really important ways. Fantastic. What's number two, Dominic?
1: So number two is, is around motivation. So it's striking that uh, appropriate balance between the needs of the individuals, the team, and the organization. And really, it's about the manager being prepared to help when things need to happen. Like Sometimes teams get really busy, and being able to dive in and assist you know, when that's necessary is really important. But it's also about the genuine interest in the growth of the team members, opportunities for learning, you know, understanding where that person's career is heading and trying to share and increase the knowledge and skills of the whole team. And that means the whole team then performs better, but also each individual is able to progress towards the goals that they're seeking. And that tends to lead to much better you know, job satisfaction and performance. And people often describe that kind of manager as being selfless because they're more concerned with their team.
0: I always think When I have conversations in workshops about what leadership is, over the years I've distilled it down to three things. It's the ability to set a very clear vision and to communicate that vision, it's the ability to motivate people towards that vision and get them to contribute their skills and knowledge and their professionalism towards that vision. And the third one is to develop my people along the way. So you've got Mm -hmm. the vision, everyone understands, they know where they're headed, everyone is motivated to contribute to that vision in the way that they can through their skills and their professionalism, but then through that process, at the end of it, we should all be better professionals than we were at the beginning. And I always kind of reach the conclusion when I have conversations with groups that leaders are really aware of the first two. Most leaders know that they should be setting a vision and trying to encourage people on the path to that vision. But I reckon it's that third one that some people don't even think they, as managers and leaders, should be aiming towards developing people. The, the Your number two tip here, as if the idea of them just staying stagnant and <laughs> yeah. delivering what they've always delivered is okay. And yeah. I guess it's because we're in such, you know, workplaces. Every industry I've ever worked with, Dominic, and I don't know if this is the same for you, every industry, their frontline staff tell me, you don't understand. We are super busy in industry yes. X. We don't have yes. time for that kind of thing. So, the yes. idea of developing our people along the way is the first thing to fall to the wayside. Uh, your experience is consistent with that?
1: Absolutely. I think that's 100% spot on. That's what I've, I've seen too. And I think you're right. I think um, we have genuinely got busier. But also, I think there's a a kind of a pressure to appear busy. So it's a kind of idea that, you know, uh, if someone asks me what I'm doing, I have to be busy, otherwise I'm not doing my role. Mm. So I think there's a a few pressures there to account for that. But I think we have had more change and I think probably more extensive change as, I mean, obviously, COVID was a part of that. But much even before that, things have the 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 rate of change has definitely increased. So therefore, we feel under more pressure, I think.
0: Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. I'm totally cool with the rate of change. I understand that. And I understand the arrow of time works at the cosmic level, and change is fantastic. We all need to evolve, and a lot of change is driven by technology and changing technology, changing community expectations, who are our customers and our staff. But the one thing I don't understand, I'd love to hear your insight on this, Dominic, is why are we forever busier? Why (laughs) are you and I in our work, and, and my wife and her work especially, from my observations, are exponentially busier than my parents were in their roles? And I think if you look back through the generations, you could say the same Why is it that we have bumbled this? As a community, as a society, we have all of these tools at our fingertips that make us work more effectively and more efficiently, yet we have somehow twisted those into a position where we are drowning in work. Every workplace is working at a pace that is unsustainable and terrible for our health as human beings. What have we done wrong, Dominic?
1: Yeah, I don't. that might be the like $30 million question if we can answer that. But <laughs> yeah, let's answer that and make $30 uh, million. I think part of it is that because we're all more accessible, therefore the pressure is there. So I was listening, you were talking to Scott earlier on, and I think one of the things there was about Scott drawing Stein. some boundaries.
0: Yeah. Isn't he valuable?
1: Yeah, fantastic. That point about boundaries that he raised mm. um, and that you were discussing, I think is a key one. You know, it's partly down to us to say, well, I'm not actually available 24 hours a day. But I think the second element is that our work has become more tenuous. So because everything can be outsourced or we're talking about a global marketplace for the, for skills, everybody whether they sort of acknowledge it or not feels more pressure to perform and to perform in a time frame that's given to them as opposed to a time frame that they set. So I think those are two factors.
0: Yeah it is the 30 million dollar question probably more it's more like a 30 billion dollar question dominic <laughs> <Probably. laughs> you know as as my journey in in this podcast has gone on it started off very clearly as a leadership podcast and and it's remained that way and and i'm really proud of of the 200 episodes which are resources that people can tap into and and i will continue to tap into because i i have a memory like a goldfish and don't remember everything my guests have said but so that resource is great but Part of the evolution in my own thinking that has happened through this journey is I guess almost it, it transcends leadership into thinking about us as humans and what mm. we've done to ourselves. And a lot of the takeaway I have from speaking to my guests and speaking to customers and clients and listeners is that it's really sad. It's really sad what we've done to ourselves and and how skewed our lives have become. I love yeah. Stephen Covey's domains, and my listeners have heard me say this a million times: domains of life. Just a nice way to think about all the things that a healthy life has—intellectual, physical, spiritual, and social, emotional. You know, we are cramming everything into one quadrant, and and it, it, it's just a strange one. It's work. I mean, yes. work doesn't isn't even its own quadrant in a healthy life. It's just our ability to you know to to feel reward of a job well done to provide Mm. for our family, to create a healthy community in our workplace, all of those kind of things. Yet so many people who listen to my podcast, so many people who I know as friends and clients and colleagues are living this ridiculously warped world. And I just don't know what we've done to ourselves and what the answer is. And like I said, in in the beginning of this long ramble, that's one of the conclusions I've reached through seven years of podcasting.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I, one of the ways that it, um, people have brought it home to me is to sort of, and it's a bit of a cliche now, but to sit back and think about, you know, at your funeral, mm. you know, w- will you look back and kind of think, gee, I did a great amount of work? Like, really, <laughs> no. that's not the question we're all searching to answer.
0: No, they don't. And, you know, I was talking about the other project that I'm working on. It's it's called yourstorypod.com.au. And what they are is personal podcasts that will never be broadcast, but mm. go to the to a family And essentially the business model is get your mum or dad to come and tell their life story and we'll record it and your family can listen to it for generations. And it's beautiful. I've done eight or nine or 10 of them so far. It's in its very early stages. And you know, of all these guys and ladies that I interview in their seventies and one man was in his eighties, you know what their career is to them? It's a footnote. It's a footnote to their life. After a decade or so of retirement what they did as a job is merely a footnote. We talk about the things that are important to them and it's always family, friends, it's memories of past glories as a youngster on the football field, all of those things that are really obviously important to us. and We know they'll be important to us as we grow older and enter the last quarter of our life. Yet, for some reason, we allow ourselves to be living in a complete delusion about the importance of work. We know it. We know yeah. it theoretically and we know it in our heart. And the conversations I have with these older guys and girls proves it to me, yet we continue to put ourselves through that in our twenties and thirties and forties and fifties. It's crazy to me. I was gonna ask you why again, but I've asked you why before
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a really interesting point you make and I think it is a is a very important question that You know, part of what we're talking about here in terms of managing people is actually about what sort of person do I want to be, and how do I want to bring people along in my interactions with them. Mm. So I think what you're saying does connect with that idea of relationship. And to me, it's about those individual relationships in the workplace. That's actually where success lies.
0: Mm. Yeah, totally. right, number one was mindset. Managers don't have to be perfect. Make mistakes and talk about them. You'll come across as down to earth and humble. The next one, number two, was motivation. It's a balance between the needs of the team, individuals, and the organizations. It's having a genuine interest in the growth of your team and the people who are in your team. What's number three, Dominic?
1: Well, it sort of touches on what we've been discussing to some extent, and that is behavior. And that's about understanding that the team makes assessments of you through the things they observe. So it's about trying to be a little bit more conscious, a little bit more deliberate about how our actions are consistent with what it is that we have committed to or what it is that we've said or with the values of the organization or with our own values. So it's kind of in a sense about, you know, doing the right thing, not necessarily what's the easiest or the quickest or the most profitable. And that comes down again to that kind of sense of integrity that, you know, I want to do the right thing by myself and my team, which is not always getting the quick buck. And that that tends to, if you're able to exhibit that, um, if you're exhibiting honesty through your actions, you're exhibiting that sort of integrity through your actions, then people consider you to be more reliable, more genuine, more sincere. And that really helps to foster trust between managers and their team members, which is, you know, one of the key things that you're really trying to build to get a successful, you know, team in the long term.
0: What is it that people do instead of that? So that's so easy to understand that our behaviours are important. We as leaders need to understand that the team is making decisions about me. They're they're judging me on the behaviours that they observe, and doing the right thing is really important. If I do the right thing, then I'll be seen as sincere and and I have integrity, and that adds up to trust between me yeah. and my team and and within the team itself. Why? I mean, I get that. That's amazing. But what is it that people do differently? What What's the other option? What do bad yeah, so, managers yeah. do in this space?
1: Yeah, it was interesting to kind of see the kinds of things that the worst managers did. So there are things like using deceit to manipulate employees, like promising a reward that never came, promising a promotion that was never really available, lying about their performance, taking credit for the work of other people, and also having a hidden agenda. Which might be about their career and sort of not really making that apparent to the team. Mm. And it's so like, well, they sort of basically the classic thing of they're there for two years and then they move on and leave a complete shambles to the next person, but it doesn't matter because they got their promotion. Yeah. Some of those things, you know.
0: All right. So that was number three. It's about behavior. What is yeah. number four, Dominic?
1: Yeah. So in this area, it was about the way in which things are applied. And I nearly didn't include this in the book because I was thinking more about the kind of principles. But I think, I thought, you know, when I'm talking to, People who are newly appointed, some of those more practical applications are important. So just some things about, you know, communication, decision making and delegation about trying to ensure that you provide, you know, as much information as possible to your team. Obviously, you've got confidentiality has to be balanced with providing information. But, you know, there's a balance there and being approachable so that you can do some of that mentoring and coaching that people need so they can feel like they can come to you and say, oh, look, I've got this going on. I'm not sure what to do. But then also to involve people in decision-making, which is kind of part of communication, but also slightly different, you know, overcoming difficulties, giving people the opportunity to have some input into the kinds of things that are going to affect them, being very clear about the expectations, providing necessary resources, and then allowing team members to actually decide how they want to do the work. So obviously giving them clear sort of like, this is what we need by when, but then not micromanaging and kind of like controlling what it is that they do. So yeah, that's in a nutshell the, the
0: things that came up there. That again is a really nice one. So the way that things are applied, decision-making and delegation, provide information to your team, be approachable, involve people in decision-making, be clear about the expectations and then let people decide how they're going to do their work. That's such a cliche one, isn't it? The idea it that, is. We, yeah. that we <laughs> employ people who are good at something, they have qualifications and experience in a certain skill But then a manager will micromanage them to the point where those who are doing the work can make no decisions. And eventually we know that if you micromanage someone long enough, they will stop thinking for themselves and they will simply wait for the next instruction. That, the idea of being micromanaged and the idea of their being mysteries within the organisation, that information isn't available, there's a whole bunch of secrets, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on that we don't understand and everyone knows it. Those two things are a cancer within a team and an organisation.
1: Yeah, I think it's, in some ways, I kind of felt like, well, some of these things are, are pretty much common sense. But what I was finding in terms of you know, my, my own students who hadn't yet gone into the workplace or in terms of consulting within organizations where a lot of the problems were around the trust within the team, whether it be the senior team, the sort of middle managers or, or the you know the sort of people doing the work um, on the front lines, was that this stuff isn't necessarily uh, well known. So I thought, well, if I can try and put it in a way that's very accessible, hopefully that will help.
0: So why is it that people act any differently to this? What- what are the reasons in your experience that some organizations and some leaders in particular are so secretive? What is the motivation behind that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure that I know precisely the answer, but I think part of it comes from that sort of inner insecurity that most of us have. and some people seem to project that insecurity with like a kind of wall of you know perfection they try and create. Mm. And then some people, don't believe that people are going to work for them or they don't believe that people are really sort of, perhaps it comes, I mean, it could partly be personality traits, but I think it could also be people's experience. Some people have really bitter experiences about being managed themselves. And so they feel like that's the only way that I can manage is like, I've got to be this kind of uh, keep everything close to my chest. I've got to hide what I'm really doing and sort of map my own path and create my own career and everyone else will just sort of like carnage on the roadside as it, part of that. That's not really my problem.
0: Mm.
1: So I'm not 100% sure exactly why, but it seems to be something in that area.
0: In, in, in my experience working in different organizations, that idea of there being secrets, that there's something going on with management that yeah. we don't know about, there is nothing that stops productivity and erodes trust and team culture like that. No. No.
1: It's interesting. I worked for a, a, an IT organization where, where they, they had sort of regular changes going on. And if people didn't know what was happening, they would create their own explanations. And it was just like really surprising. Some of those explanations would be so destructive to people's you know, trust in their manager, the the sort of performance of the team, the amount of effort they were putting into their actual work. So yeah, I agree
0: with you. All right. And lucky last, what is the fifth tip that you have for us?
1: Yeah. So the fifth one is really about Keeping trust in view. And that's, that's kind of some of those things that we've been discussing already to, by trying to be transparent, by trying to then also repay that trust. So not only is it about you sort of getting um, trust from your team, you also have to show that you trust them by giving them the opportunity to, you know, progress in their career, to give credit for the work that they've done and to really try and ensure that obviously you, you have, you do have to have some consideration for your own career, but it's about like, how do I help my team to perform really well so that then we perform really well? then I can give them the credit for that. And then I kind of, as the manager of that team, I'm sort of basically being pushed upward on their success, but they're also moving upward. So I suppose it's that whole thing of, you know, the rising tide and all the boats and that sort of thing is is the usual cliche, but it's a real thing that actually, if we can get the team performing really well, then that's how we get outstanding
0: performance. I love them all. and, And what they add up to for me is, I guess, just cognitive, me trying to justify the beliefs that I've reached. But through this podcast, I've kind of reached the belief that leadership is great in the workplace and it's really important. It's important enough for you to be a lecturer at university and for me to have done 200 episodes on a podcast and for there to be a huge industry behind it. But it's not just about what happens at work because one of the conclusions I've reached is that leadership is important not so we get more work done and make more money for the organization But because the people in our teams, our organizations are made up of human beings, human beings who go home to families and loved ones, human beings who have hobbies and interests outside of work, human beings who have a future and dreams, who will grow old and reflect on their life. So if through leadership, we can make that experience at work more positive and more harmonious and more productive, create a healthy team culture that people enjoy, being in, because they're human beings. They're people who have a life. And for me, that's one of the conclusions I reached. And I really like your set of tips behind leadership because it creates that kind of vibe that I'm thinking about, that vibe that supports the human dimension of organizations.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true. I think we really have the issue of trying to think of teams and performance and so on as kind of a concept that's out there, But actually, I agree with you. I think it's actually made up of my individual relationships with each of the people in my team. And they're a whole person. They're not just the person doing this task. They're the person who has a family at home or has other jobs or has whatever it is, you know, has interests and hobbies. And I I agree with you that if we can build a relationship that's person to person, then all those other things also fall into place. So I think that's a really good point you make there. It's, It's about dealing with the whole person, engaging the whole person, helping the whole person and then they'll do the same for us, and that's how we build a better workplace in many ways.
0: Dominic, before I let you off the hook, I'm really interested in your view, given how long you've been involved in helping leaders develop and the work that you do through your MBA program. What is the future of leadership? How is leadership changing the expectations around leaders, and why is it changing? Because we as human beings are still human beings. I'm, I'm just interested in that whole place of of change around leadership expectations. What's your view on that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think the concept of leadership is kind of being challenged by all the changes that we're facing, by the busyness. And I think also also so many more, you know, demands from compliance. Um, there are so many jobs that leaders and managers have to do now that are being added on. There's, you know, there's sort of regulatory tasks, there's risk management tasks, there's people management tasks, there's you know, knowing the business, knowing the industry, managing change. I mean, I think part of it is just trying to really see how we can cut through all of these additional things that are being thrust upon managers to do the kind of role that I think is more important. And that is like, how do we ensure that our team is in a good place and doing well? But all of those things have to be done. So I think that's why this rethink is going on. And I think the other point, and again, you've discussed this on your podcast is the whole thing of managing teams remotely has changed the way people think about it. The principles are still the same, but it's much more difficult to build trust when I'm not seeing the person directly to have those incidental conversations, those head over the cubicle, sharing knowledge around, you know, the coffee room, whatever it is. All of those things are a real challenge to how organizations interact, share knowledge, and build relationships. So I think um, that's probably the biggest challenge.
0: Yeah, that is a great point because clearly that's going to be part of the future of leadership is is managing teams who are working remotely. And as you mentioned, we've covered that a number of times on the podcast. Look, Dominic, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I can't think of a better topic for the Team Guru podcast than this really tangible set of tips for people who are beginning their leadership journey or are partway through their leadership journey and know that there's improvements that they can make and guidance that they can latch onto. So thank you so much for coming on as a guest and writing such a terrific book and speaking so passionately about it.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you.
0: And that was Dominic McLaughlin. I told you wonderful, clear, practical advice. I have no doubt that Dominic's work has the potential to help all of us be better managers. I loved his advice around making mistakes. It's so important for us to remember that managers don't need to be perfect. We're allowed to make mistakes. In fact, making mistakes and admitting to them, talking about them in a constructive way is super valuable for creating healthy relationships with our team. Dominic also talked about the importance of remembering, no matter how busy things get, that an important part of our role as managers is caring about the development of our people, their growth as a professional, as a person, and a member of our team. He also talked about the importance of sharing information rather than secretly hoarding it, and the very important concept of trust within a team, being trustworthy and trusting your team back. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Dominic on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And don't forget to check out my new project, yourstorypod.com.au. If there's someone in your life who should tell their life story, get in touch. We'll make it happen. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.